Well, good morning, everyone. And it is a pleasure to be with you this morning and open the word of the Lord. Uh, Pastor Robin, once again, has uh, gone to see his mother, our grandmother, who her health has been struggling recently. And so uh, more time spent there, the better, I think, is what he was thinking. So I appreciate you uh, praying for me this morning as we look at the book of Luke, chapter 1. The book of Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. As I begin to think about Mother's Day... Um, the first Mother's Day that I don't get to see my mom in a couple of years here, and uh, so maybe I'll see her tonight. Um, but I begin to think about all the Mother's Day texts and all of the nice sermons you would preach on Mother's Day. And then I thought, nah, I don't think I should do any of that. And so I said, Lord, what do you want to hear on Mother's Day? What, do you, what sermon would glorify you and bless our, not just our mothers, but our church? And so I started thinking about the uh, most impactful mother that the world has, the Virgin Mary. And unlike certain other uh, faiths, I do not hold Mary to be anything other than a human woman whom God chose in his wisdom to bring forth the Lord Jesus. But she does have a special place in Scripture. Uh, She rejoices in Luke chapter 1 when she hears that she is going to bear the Messiah. And it's true that in Jewish tradition, they knew the prophecies of Isaiah that one of them, one of the young ladies, would bring forth the Messiah that was promised. So Mary was not surprised that the Messiah was going to be born. She was surprised that she had been chosen. And we see now in the context here that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. Let's start reading in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, betrothal betrothal is the extreme form of an engagement. So betrothal was marriage in all but consummation. That's what betrothal is. And so she's not just engaged to Joseph. I mean, this is about to happen. They're very close to the wedding ceremony. And so her name, the virgin's name, was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, I don't know about you, but when an angel appears, that's what I want him to say. The Lord is with you, and the Lord has sent me. But she was greatly troubled. And saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Verse 32 and 33, that is where our message is today. Verse 32, He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom, there will be no end. Let us pray together. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, as we celebrate our mothers today, Lord, we are reminded why motherhood was conceived by God and put into creation, not just for life to be brought into the world, Lord, but eternal life in the form of Jesus Christ. Lord, this is the method you have chosen to bring us, not just our physical lives through the birthing of, Lord, of, of our lives by our mothers, Lord, but the spiritual birth. The Lord Jesus has come into the world now. Lord, no longer will we have to offer the blood sacrifices. No longer do I have to have, live with the guilt every year before I make it back to temple. Lord, my heart is now the altar. The holy of holies is now inside my soul. And God, who, where he dwells on the mercy seat, has seen fit to dwell upon this mercy seat. But Lord, none of that can take place. None of that worship can happen unless there has been new birth. So as we examine five great prophecies about Jesus this morning, Lord, let us be reminded 
that the reason Jesus has come, Lord, is to glorify the Father and bring the Father's children home. Lord, this is a family, a great spiritual family, that Jesus is the catalyst for the reuniting. Lord, Christ is bringing us home. And so we seek that new birth. We seek it through preaching. We seek it through discipleship. Lord, we seek it by worship. But Lord, all of this, all of this is done so the family will be together. And one day in eternity, the family will truly be reunited. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless our our words today and the preaching of your word. In your name that we pray, amen. So there's five things. If you take notes, I'd like you to note there's five things the angel tells Mary about Jesus. Now, this would be pretty nice, right, moms, if somebody had told you ahead of time, like, hey, this youngin's going to act this way, this youngin's going to set the carpet on fire when he's four, you know, don't let him do that, right? You know, that'd be nice to hear, but Mary gets to hear five things. The first thing is that he will be great. And the Greek word here for great means great. He is great. And I think about that word a lot because when, when I use the word great, it's often because like a student will come up to me and say, Mr. Josh, man, I just read like all of the book of 1 John. And I'm like, great. You know, and I am excited for them. But when we say that Jesus is great, as great as Mike Whitehurst's cheese grits are, when we say that Jesus is great, as great as the, that French toast was, when we say Jesus is great, that's a whole nother level. You don't have to turn to every one of these texts, but I would encourage you to note them for for reading later. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 says this, The Lord is speaking, and of the Son, the Lord says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. God is speaking to Jesus, the Son, and says to him, calls him God. Your throne, O God. Now, God, Jehovah, Yahweh, cannot say that to a lesser being. God cannot say to me or you, no matter how lovely you might be, O God, your throne is great. There is only one worthy to hear the words of God, O God, your throne is worthy and great, and that is Christ the Son, because he is equal in greatness with the Father. Now, this is not a sermon about the Trinity, but it's important to remember. Now, I might have some youth in here who might remember what kind of Christians we are. We're monotheistic Trinitarians. Thank you, Katie Whitehurst. And what does that mean? We believe in one God made up of three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And that's how God has revealed himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father is talking to God the Son and says, you are great. Can you imagine what it takes, how you'd have to act, how you'd have to be for God the Father to say to you, you are great? Of what human does God say those words? No, none. In fact, he has to say the opposite. You are a sinner. You are a sinner I will forgive. You are a sinner I will save. But you're a sinner all the same. But see, his son was sinless. Jesus Christ, even though tempted, and that's important to remember too, temptation is not sin. Christ was tempted, but he never sinned. He fought off Satan with the sword of the word of God. That's why he commands us to do the same. Your throne, O God, is great. God calls Jesus God. This is the key text. If you're going to talk to a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, because every religion is kind of fine with God, and they're kind of fine with your God. Oh, yeah, let's all kind of get along. But they're not fine with Jesus Christ. 
They're not fine with the Savior of the world. They're not fine with bowing to Christ. God says that Jesus is God. The next time you have somebody trying to downgrade Christ and bring him down to human level, just remind them of Hebrews 1.8. Jesus is called God by God. Only in the Trinity can this take place. Only in equality can this happen. He is great. There is nothing greater than God and the Son and the Spirit. Men try to put themselves upon a throne. Men try to build thrones and say, my throne is great. I just finished a church history class, and one of the people we covered was Charlemagne. Charlemagne, whom the Pope, on his own authority, crowned Charlemagne ruler and emperor of not just Rome, but also Europe. Charlemagne called himself the Great. We had Alexander the Great. The reason the New Testament is written in Greek is because Alexander brought Greek to the known world. Alexander wept, they say, when he saw there were no more worlds to conquer. He thought himself great. Jesus wept because he had to turn from the Father on the cross. But he did so for you and I. He is great. So that's the first thing. He will be great. Second thing. He will be called Son of the Most High. Now, here's something extremely important. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the Greek word hypostal, which means most high, but it's trying to translate a Hebrew term called elon. And the Hebrew term is not de uh, describing a father and son physical earthly relationship. The Hebrews thought in this way, and you know this already by the firstborn. What happens in a Hebrew family? The firstborn gets what? All of the fathers, right? The secondborn gets what? Less. Sometimes nothing. <laughs> That's why Jacob, being the secondborn, tricks Esau into getting the blessing. Because not being the firstborn, he does not get what the father has. And the reason for this is the Hebrews considered the firstborn son to be equal with the father. This is the lineage because the Hebrews know, and they did not have penicillin, they did not have hospitals. They know that when the father, the oldest patriarch, gets sick and dies, they don't have to replace him. There is already a replacement. See, the firstborn son is equal to the father in Jewish thought. And Mary would have been familiar with this. She would have known. When they call him son of the most high, this is almost, almost a carbon copy idea going on here. That the son grows up and raises up and takes over the father, becomes the father, and then moves on. And God did this in the Old Testament. He made a covenant with Abraham, but who does he call the father of the house of Israel? Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's 12 sons. The son grows up and becomes equal with the father. Now take this to the level of the Trinity. Jesus is not the created son of God. I've even had people read Genesis. Good, you know, decent Christians read Genesis and come to me and say, oh man, when God said, let there be light in the first verse, but then later on he says he creates the sun and the moon and Jesus is the light of the world. That must mean he created Jesus right then, right? Wrong. It's a really bad eisegesis. <laughs> God did not create Jesus. God cannot create God. When God says, I've always existed, Jesus has always existed. So he's not the created son, he is the favored son. See, this terminology is used so that you and I will understand the relationship here. We would not get it. We would not fathom it. We'd be like, God, why have you put so much importance on Jesus? I don't understand. But all of you moms today and all of you fathers today, you know how much you love your children what you would do for your children, your favorite ones. 
how much more does God favor the Lord Jesus Christ? So he is the son of the Most High, but he shares, as the Jews understood, the same substance with the Father. Jesus knew this in John chapter 10, verse 29 and 30, when Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me, he's talking about salvation, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now, that's also the reason you cannot lose your salvation. We do not contradict the words of Jesus Christ, amen? Nothing can snatch you out of the hand of God. But look at verse 30. I and the Father are what? One. This is why the Jews crucified Jesus. It's statements like this that they hated because in their legalistic worldview, you're trying to say that you're God, Jesus, and that's blasphemy. But Jesus can rightfully say it. Why? Because he is God. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the hypostatic union. How did Jesus remain fully God but also be in fully in flesh? That's a different, different sermon or sermon series. But the Bible teaches that this is so. Jesus has been, has always been, remains, and always will be God. That's why you can worship Jesus just as you worship God the Father. That's why you can worship the Holy Spirit just as you worship Jesus. Because they are equal. I and the Father are one. Jesus declares that God is greater than all and then asserts that he himself is equal with God the Father. Jesus is called Son so that we humans will understand his role in the Trinity. See, God is gentle with us. The Bible is written a very specific way so that we understand what's going on. That's why God reserves certain verses. Think about the verse, his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts higher than our thoughts. That if God was to unload the full power and knowledge upon you, your brain could not contain it, you would explode. He is son of the most high. That's the second thing, son equal with the father. Third thing, he will be given the throne of his father David. Now for the, for the early century Jew, David is not just the greatest king, He's not just the best king, he was the king. Solomon was rich, rich and wise, but the chapters in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, they're devoted to David because David is the, is the catalyst for the nation of Israel. Everything that it meant to be Jewish was resting with David. Because the covenant starts with Abraham, but David is the one who establishes it, defends it, and then eventually, through the false lineage kings to come after him, they lose it. They lose it, and that's the situation Mary's living in. The kingdom has been split. The 400 years of silence, the Maccabean revolt. David was the king. For us, that's George Washington, right? The guy who never did any wrong, could do no wrong, and we can all celebrate no matter what. That's King David for them. But the angel is telling Mary, he will not just be in the line of David, because Joseph was. And interesting that Mary is not, her lineage is not given, her husband's is. He will be in the line of David, but he will be given the throne of King David. Now, this is not just huge because you get to be king, and like Mel Brooks said, it's good to be the king. The kingdom has been broken. The king they have right now is a puppet of the Romans. He simply does what the, his Roman overlords tell him to do. The kingdom is in a grip of this oppression, and they want to break free. This is later the reason that the zealots, they want Jesus to be a guerrilla war leader. They want Jesus to take the fight to the Romans. They were angry with Jesus because he would not swing a sword. In Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4, it says this, You have said, 
I have made a covenant with my chosen ones. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This prophecy in Psalm 89 is made true in Luke chapter 1 when the angel tells Mary he will be given the throne of David. But what is the real throne of David? It doesn't just exist in Israel. It wasn't just a nice chair and a crown. It was the position of authority, leadership, and responsibility for the people of Israel. And see, we humans never got it. We, we would make the mistake, the mistake today. If Jesus had come today, we'd still make the mistake. Be like, Jesus, you've got to run Republican. And there'd be a bunch of other people saying, Jesus, if you don't run Democrat, you're not really the, you're not really the Savior. And that's what they did back then. The zealots were like, Jesus, you've got to act this way. The Pharisees were like, Jesus, you've got to be a Pharisee. The Sadducees were like, Jesus, you have to do what we want. And they all did it. They all applied their human knowledge and experience onto Christ, but Christ is not limited by those things. He comes from heaven and brings with him the heaven mindset. What is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6? Pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What goes on in heaven? Is there people up there talking and whispering while God's getting worshipped? Are there people going to the bathroom while, God's, while they're having church? Starting to meddle, right? You better quit that, preacher. You got to remember, I preach to youth a lot, so it's just a constant. It's like a, it's like a merry-go-round in here. <laughs> Stop that. Sit down. <laughs> no, none of that is going on. There are no distractions. The power never goes out, and the mics never die, and nothing ever disrupts the worship of God. In heaven, God is called holy, holy, holy forever. That's it. That's all that goes on. God is worshipped on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is fulfilling that lineage on the earth. He is king of Israel. Think about the sign they put on top of the cross to mock him. Do you remember what the sign said? Here is king of the Jews. The greatest sarcasm that the Romans could throw, that the Jewish leaders could throw on Jesus, some king. You see, this king, this king did not stay in the grave. This king did not stay in the place they wanted him to, death. No, my king arose. And I have a savior, I have a king who arose again, not just to, not just to come back to life, not just to pop up and go, ha ha, look. It's for a purpose because I needed resurrection in my heart. I needed salvation in my soul. And Jesus makes it possible. That's why he is the true king of God's people. That's why Paul could say later on that not all of Israel is Israel. God said, I will bring in a people that, that did, I did not make a covenant with. I will go and get Gentiles, and they will worship me. And then we have Revelation where it says, every tribe and every tongue being brought into the kingdom of heaven and worships God. So we have a king who wasn't just mindful of the Jews. He wasn't just mindful of the people who had it right. He wasn't about one political system. I actually was having a discussion with somebody one time. And this was back right before the election. And, and I don't talk much politics from the pulpit because it's, it's, it's useless. And neither did Jesus, so I don't. And they were talking politics, this and that, I'm afraid. And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not afraid. Like, well, what do you mean, blah, blah. And I was like, America might fall. It might burn to the ground. And they were just like, how can you say that? And I said, because I don't have a president over my salvation. I have a king. Rome was the greatest empire in the world. They fell, but you know who didn't fall? The church. The church survived. And if the United States falls, the church will survive. 
because I have a king who's already won the war. We're fighting battles now that the enemy knows they're losing. We've already have the victory given to me by my king. He is king of my throne, my heart, and he should be yours. Remember, it's okay whatever politics you got. It's okay. It's not bad. But if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christ follower, you better have a king above any politics. Amen? Number four, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. So not only is a king, but he's going to reign forever. In the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verses 15 through 17, it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord in his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has fallen. I don't know if you've read Revelation before, but I read to the end. I skipped to the very end of the book, you know. And you know who did it? The devil did it. (laughs) But you can read the end of the book where the enemies of God come against the saints and God drops fire from heaven. He consumes those who would destroy his people. He consumes the enemy in holy fire. And he doesn't just leave his people there. He brings them up to him. This is why Paul said we'll meet the Lord in the air. This is why Zechariah and Zephaniah can write the uh, end time prophecies they did. This is why Daniel can go into the 70 weeks and see the visions. Because God has already said the end. And people are so worried. They're so worried about the end of the world. There's a a Chinese rocket up there. They don't know where it's going to land. Have you guys heard about this? It's it's landed, I think this morning it was coming in. They were like, we're not sure where it's going to land. Yeah, right, I know. It's always in somewhere we don't care about, right? (laughs) They don't, they're all freaking out. I'm reading this last night, and I'm like, I'm like, yeah, they're all freaking out. And I'm like, this is like the fifth story, right? It was four political stories, and then this rocket might land on you. And I was like, this, something is backwards here. We don't know where this thing's going to land, and this is like the fourth or fifth story down here. But what's really important is our politics. <laughs> His kingdom will never end. So, so he's reigning over the house of Israel. The kingdom of the earth has fallen... And that might happen. I had an interesting discussion with somebody one time where, where a, 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 a meteorite had come close to the Earth. And I don't know if you're ever if into this. I'm a big space nerd. I love NASA and all that stuff. And if you look, you'll, you'll see where they're tracking these things in the solar system. And they miss us all the time. I mean, it's like someone at, it's like Jerome at the end of the solar system shooting a 12-gauge, and they're just missing us. You know? And I was talking to someone who was like, wow, man, what would, what would happen if a meteorite hit the Earth? And I was like, you mean like in 1907 when the one hit Russia and blew up all that land and, and in history? And they're like, what do you mean? You think that could actually happen? I was like, yeah, a meteorite could hit the earth. It's happened before. It'll happen again. And they were dumbfounded. Well, I thought you were a Christian. I was like, I am a Christian. And they're sitting there trying to put these two together. And I stopped them and I said, listen, a meteorite can end the world. It doesn't matter. That might be the fire Revelation talks about. I don't know. I have a kingdom that is going to last forever. If your hope is in this earth, you have the wrong hope, my friend. This place will not last. You will not last. It's the truth of our human existence that everything's going to be born and then die. But God has a kingdom where death will never enter the picture. Pain will never factor in. Reigns forever and ever. It would be nice, I think, sometimes, and I've read all history books where uh, George Washington, who never had any biological children, by the way. They believe he was sterile because of uh, smallpox. 
he, uh, I read a book where he had children and we just named his sons king forever. We just had, a, had just kings throughout the entire history of our country. And I thought, you know, if they were good kings, then maybe that would work. The difference with our Lord and Savior is we have a king who is never going to do us wrong. We have a king who has given us a contract in the form of his word and said, this is how I'm going to act. And if you do this, repent and believe, if you keep my commandments, this is what will happen for you. Our king's never going to renege. Our king's never going to go back. He's never going to stab you in the back. He's never going to pull the contract. He's never going to come due for the loan early. He's going to say, well, your children haven't repented yet. Too bad. Our king's never going to do that. Our king you can trust in. Our king you can worship. Because he will never counteract his word. This is why I, I, I so try to get people to read the Bible. I would just say youth, but it's, it's not just the youth. I would so try to get people to read the Bible. Because if you were signing a contract and you had a bunch of money that you might lose, you'd be looking at that contract with a magnifying glass, right? Let me make sure about this. What am I, what am I signing here? You know? Have you read the contract God has given you? Are you familiar with the fine print? By your graciousness and by the Lord's grace, I get to study and read it for a living. And I'm so pleased what I find there time and time again. People sin, people die. God is merciful. His kingdom, there is forgiveness, peace, and love. And this kingdom will last forever. Fifth point, the end of verse 33 in Luke chapter 1. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. His kingdom will never end. You have no guarantee of earthly kingdoms. You have no guarantee of political systems. You have no guarantee that, that your physical things you have built for yourself are going to last. In fact, more often than not, they will fall. So fear not the destruction of country or culture. Fear God. What did Jesus say? It's better for you to go into heaven with one less eye than be cast into hell. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. We're so afraid of the people who can take our bodies. We're so afraid and we shake in fear. But we come to God and we stand before him and go, ah, I'm good, I'm all right. Before the Holy One who can take not just body, but some mind and soul and heart, we go, ah, I'm good. Or I'll tell you what, let's not go today. How can we stand before this king and not mind? These promises have, uh, must have immediately reminded Mary because David understood the prophecy in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He refers not only to the immediate son, of Solomon building the temple and bring, ushering in the law of Judaism and bringing in the great uh, epic era of the Jews. David understood that one day there would be a future king, one who would not just establish Israel, but would establish them spiritually in front of the eyes of God. Of this kingdom, there is no end. And I'd like you to turn, I'd like you to actually turn to this, this verse. Revelation chapter 22. Chapter 22, verse 13. This is a famous text. It is a text that we use often, but I think there's something here for us at the end that I think will be very good for us. So we're talking about a kingdom that never ends, a kingdom that never goes dark, never loses power, and the Lord and King of it will never be dethroned. Everybody there in chapter 22, verse 13? 
Jesus says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, he not just covers the entire alphabet. He doesn't just cover the first and last of everything. He says, I am the beginning and the end. Now, I had to check with my resident Greek scholar, uh, Dr. Ortiz, about this word here, because I was like, well, if his kingdom never ends, and Luke says it never ends, Psalm says it never ends, why would Jesus say, I am the end? What's he trying to communicate here? And I look at Scripture with the assumption that God doesn't make mistakes, so I don't just immediately go, ha ha, I found one, you know. And so after checking, this is the conclusion that I and uh, several commentaries and several friends that I talked to came to. The Greek word here, telos, uh, can be translated the end or the final end, but it can also be translated this way. The continuous result, the culmination, the fulfillment, uh, almost even a sense of revenue that has come, come to you. But here's the one that I thought most, most excellent. The sense of the finish line. So thinking about a race, the same race that the Apostle Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians, that I run this race to win, I'm not just you know, faking it. If Jesus is the finish line, when I win the race and cross over the finish line, is that all there is? No, what happens when the first place winner crosses that finish line? There is celebration. There is a reward. There is a feast. And I know we're Baptist in here, but there's champagne. I mean, it's a party. When you cross that finish line, when you get to Christ, not just physically, but spiritually, and you meet him, at the finish line of the gates of heaven. And God, Jesus, says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have finished the race. You have run well. Think about Stephen in Acts chapter 8. Stephen, who's thought of as the first martyr. God lets him see a vision as rocks are pounding his body. He sees a vision of Jesus, not sitting at the right hand of God, but standing. And, and preachers like to mention Jesus just kind of being like, yeah, it's my boy, Stephen, da-da-da, you know. Um, Jesus is not Ed McMahon. He's not a WWE announcer. I imagine almost Jesus standing there. And I, I imagine maybe he's not doing anything. He's just looking at Stephen. He's going, it's so close, my friend. You are so close, my brother. In another few moments of pain, you will be with me. And I will say to you, well done. I think Jesus was standing so that he could get up and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. So today, what is the end result for you? Is the end result of this Christian race going to be, I went to church? There's some kind of sticker book somewhere with my name in it? Or possibly the worst thing, I hope God is happy with me? I mean, I hope in Jesus, but I don't hope in that. I don't hope God is happy with me. I know God is happy with me because I've kept his commandments. Not perfectly. Thankfully, that wasn't a requirement. I kept him with purpose. I kept him with repentance, and I kept him with faith. And when I cross that finish line, when I get to the end where Christ is standing, where Christ is ready to receive me, and I will hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. I can know. I can know that everything was worth it. Every hardship on that race was worth getting to Jesus. So I ask you again, what is the end for you? What's the goal here? Because I know my dad's heart. I know the heart of many of you in here, you, you mature men and women of the Lord. 
But if I don't know you, you as well, I'd like you to think about it. What is your end goal? Are you here to satisfy a religious requirement? Or are you here because you want to see the face of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's the end that I want. So I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to pray. And the, and the band's going to come up here in just a little bit and help me sing our doxology. But as I pray, I want you to go into your heart. And I want you to say, Lord, I'm not perfect. We all know that. You're all looking at me. You know I'm not. Lord, I'm not perfect. You know that. But God, what's my end goal here? Because I believe there's a lot of Christians who truly are seeking God, but a lot of things get in the way. What's our end goal? What's our end result? And if you are sitting in here today, and I do believe there are lost people in every church service, if you are sitting here today, and whenever I say this part, I often look up to heaven so no one assumes that I'm looking at them. If you're sitting in here today, and you know in your heart of hearts that you are not with the Lord, then my friends, you need repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where a lot of preachers get you to say a prayer. I'm not going to do that because Jesus never did that. But I'm going to tell you this. Jesus said, let no one rob of the simplicity of Christ. There's nothing you have to do. There's no credit card you have to swipe. There's no religious institution you have to join. There's nobody who has it more right than this right here. Jesus is here. Repent of your sin and believe, as Mark chapter 1 tells you to do. So I'm going to pray. And if you are a Christian sitting in here today and you are going, Lord, you're my end, but man, sometimes things get in the way. Help me, Lord. Amen. I will be praying that myself. But if you're sitting in here and you're saying, I'm not sure. I don't know if that's my end result. I don't know if that's my end goal. Turn to the one true king. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will save you because only he can. He is the one true king and he deserves your worship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I know that this race is hard. There are rocks in the road. There are holes to fall and stumble into, Lord. There are people on the sides screaming at us that we are stupid and that we are morons and how could we believe in a big old guy in the sky. But Lord, they don't know the truth. They don't know what set me off on this race, the inward change inside my soul. Lord, the truth that Christianity is real. That God is up in heaven and he is going to judge with holy fire one day. But for all who turn to him, for all who confess with their mouths and believe in their hearts that the Lord Jesus Christ is Savior, they will be saved. Lord, I pray for any in here today who do not know you. Lord, who have not turned to you yet, that today could be the day of salvation, that there could be new birth on Mother's Day in the name of the Lord Jesus. But Lord, if not, we still submit everything to you. For you have a plan, you have a will, you are working all things to the good, as Romans 8 tells us, Lord, and I trust in that. So Lord, make it ever clear to us what our end result is, what the finish line should be. Not a religious institution, not degrees, not, not fancy knowledge of even, even the Bible, Lord, but the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, let us forget not the command to keep all the commandments and all the law, we must but do but two things, love God and love our neighbors. Do this and you will fulfill all the law and the prophets. Lord Jesus, thank you for those words from your gospel. And help us, Lord. Help us to love you. Help us to love our mothers. Lord, love our neighbors and fulfill our service 
in the kingdom of God today. We ask all these things in your name.